Well, as always, it's good to see you here this morning to come and to worship our King and to open His Word. It'll be a couple of weeks yet before we get back to Hebrews, but we will get back there. But this morning, I want us to take a pause on that and to look at an important subject matter, serving with love. You know, if you're a Christian this morning, then God tells us in the Scripture that there are several other realities that are also true of you as a believer. For example, if you're a Christian, then you are an adopted son or daughter of God. You are a citizen of Christ's kingdom. If you're a Christian, your sins have not only been forgiven, but you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ by grace through faith. If you're a Christian, then Jesus Christ is not only your Lord and your Savior, but imagine this, he's even your brother and even your friend. These are glorious truths that should stir up our hearts to worship, that should cause us to long for Christ's return. But the Bible reveals there's something else that's true of us if we are in Christ, and that is that every single Christian has received a spiritual gift that God intends for us to use and to steward for the upbuilding or the edification of his church. We see this in places like 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, where it says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What Peter describes here is that God has given us a spiritual gift, and not only that, but we are mandated to steward that gift well, to use it in the life of the local church so that the church may be built up in Christ. Peter breaks down spiritual gifts into two broad categories. There are speaking gifts, and those who have speaking gifts are to speak as if speaking the utterances of God because they're speaking from the Word of God. And there are serving gifts, and those who serve in the church in non-teaching ways are to serve by the strength which God supplies. But every single Christian has a spiritual gift, if not many spiritual gifts, that are to be used for the betterment of the church. But this morning, I want us to understand that God's not only given instruction about the gifts that we have, but he's given us instruction on how those gifts are to be used most effectively in the church. And so I want us to revisit a very famous passage this morning, but a a critical passage for us to understand rightly in its context, because it it is to overlay the way that we serve one another, it's to overlay the way that we fellowship with one another, it really is to define our interactions in the church. And as it turns out, your effectiveness in the church at being an instrument of edification is dependent not only on your giftedness, but on your character. And specifically, this passage will focus our attention on that chief attribute, that fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Of course, the command to love one another is a universal command to every single Christian. 
As you know, the Apostle John, as we read this morning, tells us that if, if you don't love Christ and the brethren, the, those that Christ has saved, then you're not truly a believer. 1 John chapter 2, verse 10 says, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Verse 14 goes on to reiterate that point. We know that we have passed out of death into life. That is, we know we're a, a Christian because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Christ, of course, has loved us, and therefore he calls us to express that love to one another. So love then as a Christian is really not optional. Love for Christ and love for his people is in fact an evidence of genuine faith. But with those reminders uh, freshly in mind, I, I want us now to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Turn in your Bible if you're not there already to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because here we will see this command to serve with biblical love. But before we read the, the text, let me just remind us quickly of the context that leads up to this chapter. First of all, the theme of the whole book of 1 Corinthians is correction and condemnation. If you're familiar with Corinth, the church in Corinth, you understand this is a church that was a mess, to say the least. This, this is a church dealing with sexual immorality of a nature that even the world would find reprehensible. This is a church that's known for its divisions as different pockets of people in the church divide around their favorite teachers. This is a church who also leading up to chapter 13 apparently is mesmerized by spiritual gifts. They want the biggest gifts, the greatest gifts, and apparently they're using those gifts in a way that is self-serving rather than Christ-exalting. And it is this issue of the misuse of spiritual gifts that leads Paul to pen the famous words that you may have had read at your wedding or, or some other venue, which is totally fine to do. But these words actually are intended in context to give a corrective on how we serve one another in the body of Christ. Chapter 12 introduces this idea of spiritual gifts and begins to highlight the fact that there's some selfishness happening in the church as people serve one another. Chapter 14 on the other side of 13 will give specific instructions on how the gifts are to be used. But right here in the middle, chapter 13 talks about the fact that this chief ingredient of love is key for your gifts to be used in a way that actually build up the body of Christ. Now, just quickly as a side note, I recognize that 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14 are typically chapters that we go to to talk about the debate over whether or not the miraculous gifts are still active in the church today. Um, I believe the miraculous gifts were sign gifts given to testify to the biblical authors and are no longer normative for the church, but that's really not the heart of our message this morning. We'll teach on that at some point in the future. But this morning, in fact, I, I think we have to avoid one of the key dangers that sometimes people in our theological camp run into, and that is only thinking of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 from a defensive posture, that this is where we go to argue our point on the gifts and, and the, the, particularly the miraculous gifts. Certainly, we have to deal with these chapters when we talk about that. 
But there's something here for us today that we need. There, there's instruction here that's relevant to this church in 2023 that's important for us to understand because what Paul had in mind originally was really not the cessation of the gifts, but how to use the gifts properly. And that's what I want us to see today because those general principles are still very much alive and active. Now, if we take the chapter as a whole, chapter 13, and we break it into its parts, we can do that quickly in three parts. Three aspects of love are given to us here in chapter 13. First of all, we have the priority of love in verses 1 to 3, the portrait of love in verses 4 to 7, and the permanence of love in verses 8 to 13. Now, my primary goal this morning is to deal with verses 4 to 7, that middle aspect, but we really have to understand aspect number 1 in order to truly grasp the significance of number 2. So we will deal with aspect number 1 and aspect number 2 and save the third aspect for another day. But let's read our passage together, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing." Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What we learn in these verses is one simple truth. It's this, the effectiveness of our spiritual gifts hinges on our practice of love. The effectiveness of our spiritual gifts hinges on our practice of love. Now, we'll begin with by looking at this first aspect, aspect number one, the priority of love in verses one to three. And what you notice here in these first three verses are, are a series of conditional statements, that is, if-then statements. Typically, a conditional statement has two parts, the if section and the then section. But Paul does something different here. He breaks these into three parts. He adds another part to these conditional statements so that it reads, if this is true, but this is also true, then this is true. Now, if you quickly look for the word if, you'll notice there are five if statements. Normally, we would go through these one by one in, in order, verse by verse, but I just want to give an overview of these three verses because we're going to really dive into verses four to seven. But I want you to see that there are five if statements and then three but statements, and there are then, they are followed by then statements, even though the word then is not explicitly written you get the sense of the then portion of the conditional statement as you read. Now, here are the five if statements. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, 
If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith so as to remove mountains, if I give all my possessions to the poor, and finally, if I surrender my body to be burned. Now, each one of these five if statements highlights a different spiritual gift or a different form of extreme sacrifice for the name of Christ. And each of them are intended to be hyperbole. These are hyperbolic statements to grab the attention of the Corinthians. The first statement deals with the spiritual gift of languages. This is a person having the the gift of being able to speak a real known human language without previously having studied that language. But notice here, he doesn't just say that this is a person who has the gift of languages. This is a person who has the gift of angelic languages. This is intended to be hyperbolic. If I speak with human languages that I've never studied, but I also speak with even angelic languages that I've never studied. Next, he mentions the gift of prophecy, which in context refers to the ability, the divine ability to give new revelation to the church. This was a gift that was active in the early church until the New Testament was written. It was a key gift. Uh, Paul says even the church is built on the foundation of Christ, the apostles, and the New Testament prophets. But notice this is not just a normal prophetic gift because this is not a person who knows some of the hidden mysteries of God and some of the hidden knowledge of God. This is a person that knows all mysteries and they know all knowledge. God's given them an extraordinary measure of this gift. The next gift is the gift of faith, but this too is not just the ordinary gift of faith. This is a person who has extreme faith to the point that they speak to this mountain and it moves from here to there. The fourth is the gift of giving, but this too is an extraordinary measure of the gift of giving. This is a person who doesn't just give sacrificially, but notice they liquidate all of their assets and they give them away to the poor. It's the the most sacrificial form of giving. And then finally, the fifth gift, the gift of perseverance through persecution. This is a person who remains faithful to Christ to the end, all the way to the point that they allow themselves to be burned for the sake of Christ. Now, the point of all of these if statements is to to give inflated, hyperbolic examples to captivate the attention of the Corinthians who were so enamored by these gifts. They all wanted them so badly. So Paul says, okay, you want the gifts so badly, let's just assume for a moment that you have them. You have them all to the nth degree in the greatest measure that each of the gifts can be possessed. And then he says, but. He adds this triad of but statements to qualify, and each of the but statements is an exact repetition. He says, let's say you have all of that, but do not have love. And then he adds three devastating then statements, and they are these. If all of that's true, but you don't have love, here's the real reality. I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I am nothing and it profits me nothing. Now, when we take all of those statements together, the weight of that is absolutely crushing. What Paul says is to practice even the greatest gifts of speech, but to not 
accompany those gifts of speech with love is like trying to play the melody line of a song on an instrument that only makes one note. That's what it means to be a resounding gong. It's like trying to play Amazing Grace on the cowbell. It's never gonna happen. Nobody's gonna pick up the tune because it only makes one note. That glorious gift, even in all its grandeur, will have no effect in edifying the church because it was not matched with biblical love. Likewise, to use the greatest gifts of prophecy and of faith apart from the exercise of love means that you are not only not to be highly esteemed or highly exalted, it means that you are nothing. And to sacrifice all your possessions, to sacrifice even your life for the sake of Christ, but not to do it out of biblical love, not only earns you a lesser reward, he says, it profits you nothing. Now the truth is, this morning we feel the weight of those statements, but perhaps we don't feel them quite as pointedly as we ought because we are not hopefully clamoring for the same gifts. Hopefully you're not clamoring for the gift of languages or clamoring for God to speak new revelation to you this morning. But remember, these, these gifts here are simply representative. The point here is to establish a universal principle concerning the, the use of any legitimate spiritual gift in the church. So for us as members of NBC in 2023, perhaps it'd be more effective to hear it stated this way. If I have the gift of teaching and the church rushes to hear my messages, if I'm known in the church as one who has great wisdom and am constantly sought out by others for counsel, if I lead a thriving small group and my group is the envy of the other groups in the church but have not love, my words are like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I'm the first one to arrive and the last one to leave on the setup team each Sunday, if I lead a ministry team and yearly take the most people through partners year over year, if I'm sought after to serve with children because of my giftedness at connecting with kids, and if everyone's vying for me to use my administrative gifts to run the, to, to run the grandest events in the church, but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give sacrificially, foregoing a bigger house and a nicer car, if I open my home day in and day out to show hospitality, and if I make three meals a week to give away to families in the church but have not love, it profits me nothing. You see, these principles are just as relevant for us today as they were to the messed up church in Corinth divided over these gifts. The relevance of this can't be overstated. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the head of the church. And he's not only determined what spiritual gifts each of us will have, he has mandated the way those gifts are to be used to build up his people. And so we have to be obedient to both, to use our gifts, but to use them in the way that he says. You know, the temptation uh, to elevate giftedness over character is just as tempting for us today as it was in the early church. Each one of us can be guilty of patting ourselves on the back because the lesson that we taught received positive feedback or the, the administration of the event that we ran went off without a hitch. 
all the while squelching our guilty conscience for treating others harshly with a sharp and critical tongue to get the job done in the way that met our personal preference. We have to be careful not to elevate the gift over the character. This is an urgent call for us to evaluate our own hearts and to test ourselves for the virtue of love. Now to do that, Paul helps us by giving us a list of 15 qualities of love. We'll call this the second aspect of love handled here in chapter 13, the portrait of love in verses four to seven. We'll spend the bulk of our time this morning here in these verses. Let's read them again, beginning in verse four. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, obviously, there are 15 of these descriptions, and so we're not going to be able to exhaustively discuss each one as as much as we could, but what I want to do is just give us a survey of all 15 of these characteristics and then put them together and let the weight of that survey by the power of the Spirit do its work in our hearts. The first description of love here is the description of patience. Love is patient. The word patient means to bear up under provocation without complaint. Patience, the the Bible says, is to be demonstrated in each one of our interactions in the church. There is no scenario in which impatience with another brother or sister in the church is justified. And we know that not just because it's listed here in this list, but Paul says it in other places, such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 14. He says, we urge you, brethren, Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. Now, depending on your personality this morning, it's likely that you'll find one of these three types of individuals mentioned here a little more difficult to be patient with than others. So just take a moment and ask yourself, which type of person that was listed there in 1 Thessalonians 5 is most difficult for you personally to maintain patience with? Is it unruly people, people who are living in hard-hearted sin? Is it faint-hearted people, those people that just can't seem to get their emotions together and they they come to you over and over again, always with sort of an Eeyore-type perspective on life? Or is it the weak person? The person that just doesn't know enough biblical truth yet or are still immature and living out the biblical truth that they should have learned long ago. Well, it's it's true that certain personalities that we encounter in the, the body of Christ may prove more difficult for us to serve with patience. What the Bible says is that we are called to be stewards of our gifts, to serve them with patience, regardless of how difficult that may be. There's no scenario in which God excuses us serving any one of his sheep with an attitude of impatience. That brings up an important truth that we need to address before we move on, and that is to answer this question. Where in the world do these qualities come from? 
I mean, of all the qualities that Paul could have listed, why these 15 qualities? Well, if you think about it, these are the attributes that define the shepherding care of Christ, the good shepherd, for his sheep. Paul is simply calling us to imitate and to model the character of Christ in the way that we care for his people. And so if you have a gift, and you do if you're a believer, then you are not only to speak the truth and to serve the people of the body, but you're to do that in a way that, that manifests the character of Christ so that it has the effect that God intends. This is a good reminder for us that we are not serving our own sheep. These are sheep, the people sitting here who have been bought by the blood of Christ. They belong to him. And we may not serve one another for our own ends or in our own ways. The Bible says you are to serve and you're to serve like I would serve my people because they're my people. To be a steward of your giftedness then means that we're to think about what the shepherd would say and the way the shepherd would say it at the time the shepherd would say it. Our prayers for one another ought to reflect the way the shepherd prays. Our thoughts of one another ought to affect the way our shepherd thinks of us. That's where these come from. They come from the character of Christ. But not only patience, Paul goes on to describe a second attribute of love, which is kindness. Love is kind. To be kind or merciful. This is a description then that gets down into the way we express ourselves and the way that we interact with God's people. This gets down into things like our body language and our eye contact and our word choice. Even the tone of our voice matters if we're to emulate the way that Christ loves his sheep. If we're going to love his people, then we need to think not only seriously about what we say, but how we say it. This is Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. Listen to this. According to the need of the moment. So a well-timed word, a thoughtful word, a seasoned word, so that it will give grace to those who hear. You know, unfortunately... It's very tempting to abuse our service positions and to use them as an opportunity to lead for our own ends in our own way and to speak to God's sheep in a way that simply isn't kind, that falls short of the kindness that God extends to us. And what Paul reveals here is that kindness towards God's people is an outward fruit that reveals whether or not we truly love the sheep. There's a third description of love that ought to characterize our service. Love, he says, is not jealous and is not jealous. To be jealous is to have intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success. Now, at this point, Paul moves from positive descriptions of love to negative. There's going to be eight negative descriptions here in a row. And as you know, the sin of jealousy is a cancerous sin in the church that threatens to destroy the unity of the body of Christ. And jealousy shows up most often in the church when it comes to our service roles and our personal friendships. Perhaps someone's chosen to lead a certain ministry or activity that you really wanted to lead, but you were overlooked. Perhaps others seem to get more recognition for their service in the church while you never seem to get mentioned. 
In other instances, we look at others in the church that seem to have closer relationships with others, at least from our perspective, or maybe not that they have closer relationships in general, but they're close with a particular person that we really want to be close with, but we're not as close as we want to be. And so jealousy begins to spring up in our heart towards that person, either in their, their service position or in their fellowship with other people. And if we don't kill that jealousy that's brought on by our pride, it will ruin the unity of the church. Fourthly, love does not boast, Paul says. It does not boast. Literally, does not brag. The word means to heap praise on oneself. You know, while serving in the church is a rich blessing when it's done for the glory of Christ, it, it can also provide dangerous temptations towards pride and boasting, can it? We all have to admit that far too often, a desire for personal recognition and good reputation lies under the surface of our motivation for service in the church. And one of the telltale signs that a desire for personal recognition plays a part in our motivation is how we respond in our hearts when we serve and it goes unnoticed. You study hard and you pray hard in preparation for that lesson only to finish teaching and have no one say a word afterwards. You set up and tear down week in and week out while others enjoy fellowship, but no one ever seems to notice your sacrifice. Let me ask you, what goes on in your heart when the work of service is done? Do you find yourself engineering creative ways to weave your sacrificial service into conversation after church in hopes that someone will make a mention of what you've done? When someone else is praised in conversation because of some way that they've used their gift to serve the church, are you tempted to work in a comment about how you've done something to get them also to give you the praise that you feel you deserve for ways you've served in the church? Let me ask you, do you find joy and satisfaction simply in having had the privilege of serving Christ's church or are you unsatisfied until someone gives you a word of thanks or praise for what you've done. You know, we often think of a person who is boastful or who brags as a, a loud, uh, bombastic personality that, that it sort of declares from the rooftop, sort of a Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest sort of person. But understand that we can deal with the sin of boasting and bragging deep in our hearts as we seethe in anger or bitterness or discontentment because no one seems to notice all that we do. And what Paul says is both the external and the internal manifestations of this sin have no place in the body of Christ and they are not in consistent love as we serve. Fifthly, love is not conceited. It's not conceited. Literally, the text says, and is not arrogant. That word arrogant defined means to cause to have an exaggerated self-conception, to puff up or to make proud. Now this is of course a classic description of pride and selfishness. It goes hand in hand of course with boasting. So there's a lot of overlap here between some of these terms. You know, and as I've searched my own heart for this particular sin, I've recognized that there are some warning signs that often come with this particular sin that help us evaluate whether or not we're giving in to this. 
And what I've found is that when we give in to an exalted view of ourselves, it produces a critical spirit and a bent towards individualism. When we allow pride and arrogance to grow in our hearts, we will only ever see the faults and the inadequacies of those around us. And when we give in to arrogance, we prefer to serve alone rather than with a team. And we say that we're, we're doing that because we're willing to selflessly shoulder a big load, carry a lot of water, a lot of weight for the kingdom, when in when actuality, under that facade is the ugly truth that we don't want to serve with a team because we don't trust them to do it the right way, and it's easier just to do it ourselves. And this is arrogance. This is pride. Now, don't get me wrong. That, the ability to see areas in a ministry that could be improved or that could grow is a gift. It's a gift to the elders in the church. It's a gift to the people in the church in general. But when we exercise that gift of being able to see the holes in things without love, it does the opposite of what we intend. It tears down rather than building up. The, the loveless sin of arrogance makes us quick to correct and rebuke others for their weaknesses, but it also makes us quick to be defensive when anyone dares to bring up a weakness in ourselves. And this flies in the face of Proverbs 17.10, which reminds us that a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. The wise man is one who learns quickly, who listens quickly to the input of others. There's a sixth description here. Love does not act unbecomingly. Now, that's not a common way that we speak. You're acting unbecomingly, dear. Please stop that. We don't say that. Unbecomingly is disgraceful behavior. It's dishonorable behavior, indecent behavior. Essentially, what he's saying is when we act out of genuine love, love is never rude. It's never shameful in its actions. It's never disgraceful towards God's people. It doesn't treat people with disrespect. An example of acting unbecomingly actually is given of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as Paul rebukes them because they were using the Lord's table as a way to flaunt their wealth. People were coming to take of the Lord's table. The rich were coming and eating to excess and drinking to excess while the poor were leaving hungry. And Paul says, don't do that. That's acting indecently. It's unbecoming. And so we have to avoid it in our service of one another. A seventh description of love here is that it does not seek its own. Does not seek its own. Love is not selfish, but instead desires the good of others. As Philippians 2, 3 and 4 tells us, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And this self, selfish uh, perspective can certainly demonstrate its, itself in the way we treat one another individually, but perhaps most often this seeking of our own shows itself when we work with a team or a committee of some kind. You know how it goes. A discussion begins about how to best accomplish, uh, how to best accomplish a ministry task, and it can be something simple uh, like how to arrange the tables at an event or how to promote uh, a particular new ministry in the church. But as that conversation ensues, it becomes clear that your perspective is not winning out. 
And instead of selflessly deferring to either the leader of the group or the consensus of the group, you, you, you double down and you push your idea trying to ramrod the group to do what you would have them do. Temptations towards that can happen in any ministry of the church from setting up the nursery to elder meetings. We have to be careful not to be self-serving, serving ourselves, no matter what area we're serving in the church because selfishness is deadly It's cancerous like these other attributes to the unity of the church. Number eight, the eighth description is love is not provoked to anger. This word means to to stir to anger. In the passive, as it's used here, it means to be provoked, to be stirred up, to be incensed. This describes a person who's slow to anger because it's not easy to stir them up. This is a person who has intentionally, by God's grace, developed a slow fuse. And it's a slow fuse that is learned by looking in the scriptures at our God who is long-suffering and who is slow to anger. And therefore, even though this person is poked and prodded by others, he or she will not allow himself to be stirred to the point of anger. If we're going to use our gifts in the church in a way that builds up the body rather than tearing it down, then we have to be a people committed to being slow to anger. The Proverbs are, are full of this. Proverbs 17, 27 is one of my favorite verses to memorize and meditate on in my own life. It says, he who restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Or how about Proverbs 15, 28? The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Thinking, processing through the scripture, being slow to speak so that we speak in a way that reflects the truth. So we have to examine ourselves this morning then and ask the hard questions. Ask yourself, am I easily stirred up? Am I easily provoked? Do I have a short fuse? Ask yourself, do members of the church or members in my family find me unapproachable because they fear how I will respond to their questions, comments, or critiques? Paul says the Christian who loves Christ and his people from a genuine heart will develop the ability by God's grace to be slow to anger, not provoked. Description number nine, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Literally, he says, does not take into account a wrong suffered. That word is an accounting term. It means to determine by mathematical process, to calculate. The image is a person who is is keeping a tab, a tallies in their, their, their journal, so to speak, of every time that person sins against them. They're keeping a record. And I want you to notice here that This is a real wrong that's been suffered. This is not imaginary. He says, does not take into account a wrong suffered. So this is is not you misunderstanding the situation and taking things the wrong way and finding out later, oh, you didn't really mean that. No, this is a person who literally hurts you or sins against you in a real way, but you don't take it into account. You refuse to keep a ledger of those sins against you. We have to all admit that none of us are impervious to this sin of keeping a record of wrongs of those who hurt us in the church. 
Now, we may not outright publicly cut people off or unfriend them on Facebook, but when they disrespect us or hurt us, we are more tempted to harbor secret internal feelings of bitterness and anger towards them. For example, when we, when we start to walk down the church hallway or something and we, we see this person coming, we suddenly remember there's something on the other side of the building that we need to get really quickly and we go the other way. Or maybe we sinfully respond by never allowing that person to mature past that mistake in our mind. Even though it's been years since they did that to us, they've repented, they've grown in that way, we still refuse to fellowship with them. We don't want to serve on the same team they serve on because of what they did to us all those years ago. When we do those things, we're keeping a record of wrongs and we're not serving in accordance with love. Description 10 and 11 go together. They're the opposite sides of the same coin. Paul says, love also does not rejoice in unrighteousness on the one hand, but rejoices with the truth. You have the negative and the positive. And this one's a little harder to illustrate, but perhaps this is most tempting for us when it comes to our private one-on-one conversations. MacArthur gives the example of gossip to illustrate this idea. Maybe behind closed doors, we're willing to talk one-on-one with a friend or a small group about other people in the church in a way that truly crosses the line of gossip, in which now we're finding joy in telling stories and spreading uh, new evil news about others. I think this is a sin that can show up when we give in to the sin of gloating when another pastor or prominent person that's on the other side of the theological aisle from us falls into sin in some public way. I'm not talking about a a heretical person, but a person who's a brother but perhaps holds a different position, and we see that they're discredited in some way, and we want to subtly champion that because we feel somehow it justifies our theological position that this brother fell. This is wickedness. Instead, we ought to see the failure of any true brother as a sober warning for ourselves to take stock of our life and doctrine, to pray for our leaders, to pray for our church, to pray for our own souls. As believers, we're called not only to not rejoice in what is unrighteous, but to have mouths filled with the truth. We're to be characterized by bringing one another back to the truth of Scripture and what God says and how we ought to respond to each and every situation. At this point, as we come to the 12th description, Paul turns a corner here and he adds to each of these final terms the words, all things. So these are all exhaustive terms. He says, first of all, description number 12, love bears all things. This is to keep confidential, to pass over in silence. I love the way that that the most prominent Greek lexicon translates this word here. It says, or defines it. This is love that throws a cloak of silence over what is displeasing in another person. An intentional choice to cover in grace and love those things that are weaknesses or even the quirkiness of other people. By the way, we're all quirky. Someone finds you quirky. You know, it's easy to think that all these other people are quirky. Well, you're that for someone else, okay? Can we just admit we're all sinners and we're all quirky to someone? And so God calls us to cover that, to cover the weaknesses of others and to cover the things in them that's like, yeah, I wouldn't have done it like that. I wouldn't have said it like that. Just what we'll call quirkiness. 
It's a call to focus on those things that are lovely and praiseworthy in other people rather than focusing on those things that really rub us the wrong way. Let me ask you this morning, do you discipline your mind to think on the things you most appreciate about other people or do you allow your mind to wander to those things that really, really bug you? This is a call to bear all things, to cover them on purpose with grace and love. Not only that, true love believes all things. Description number 13, it believes all things. This is to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. Now, as we think about believing all things, we need to be clear what Paul is not saying as well as what he is saying. So let me deal with the negative first. What does this not mean to believe all things? Well, he's not saying that, that all Christians are to be gullible people who have no discernment He's not saying that we're to blindly trust someone who has unashamedly proven himself to be untrustworthy. John Calvin helps us in this in his commentary. He says, not that the Christian knowingly and willingly allows himself to be imposed upon, not that he divests himself of prudence and judgment that he may be the more easily taken advantage of, not that he unlearns the way of distinguishing black from white. So it's, it's not that that Paul is, is telling us to be gullible, but then what is he telling us to do? Well, Calvin helps us here again on the positive side. Listen to Calvin's words. He requires here simplicity and kindness in judging of things, and he declares that these are the invariable accompaniments of love. Now listen to this. The consequence will be that a Christian man will reckon it better to be imposed upon by his own kindness and easy temper than to wrong his brother by an unfriendly suspicion. I love that way of turning a phrase, an unfriendly suspicion. Really, this is a call to assume the best of one another. It means that we're assuming the best of each other's motives and the best of one another's intentions. You know, our tendency is to quickly draw conclusions about another person's motives and intentions before we've ever given them a chance to explain. And so the truth is we may only know what took place, but we have no idea why it took place or what was meant by it. But we certainly jump to conclusions, don't we? And we fill in those gaps by our own context clues, and we can build a whole narrative about another person that's totally based on our own mental lies and suspicion. But true love, listen to me, true love assumes there must be more to the story. True love thinks like this. I know it appears like this brother or sister has sinned against me in this way, but this is not consistent with what I've known about their character. Therefore, I will choose to resist the temptation to make judgments about their motives and their character until I've given them a chance to explain to me what happened. And if the worst turns out to be true, then I'm preparing myself now to stand ready to forgive them. This is what it is to believe all things. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you view the members of this church and the leaders of this church with an attitude of suspicion or trust? To serve with love means we start from a starting place of assuming the best of one another. 
We believe all things. Scripture number 14, we also hope all things. Love hopes all things. This is to look forward to something with implication of confidence about something. So in the church, when someone hurts us or exhibits spiritual immaturity in a pronounced way, the easy thing to do is the sinful thing to do, which is just to cut them off. You know, if you're going to treat me like that, we're not friends. I'm not going to spend time with you. But biblical, Christ-motivated love never loses hope for people because it never loses faith in God. Understand, this call to hope all things is not a call to hope all things because of some inner goodness within humanity. We hope all things of one another because we know that God's not finished with us yet. And yes, that brother or sister may be immature in that way. They may hurt you in that way. But we are hoping all things for them in the sense that God can change their heart just as he's continually changing my heart so that I'm not the same person I used to be. It's to give the grace to others that we pray they'll give to us. We hope all things for them. And the key to maintaining hope in our attitude towards one another in the church is by taking our eyes off of each other and placing them firmly on Christ. I'm going to look at you through my Savior. Then I can hope all things for you. God's not done with you yet, and he's not done with me. Now we come to the 15th and final description of love. Love also endures all things. That is to maintain a belief or course of action in the face of opposition, to stand one's ground, to endure, to hold out. Serving believers who are gracious and thankful for your service is easy and it's a joy. But serving believers who are ungrateful and who distrust your words and question your motives is painful and exhausting. And so our temptation will be avoid, to avoid serving and fellowshipping with those that are hard and only focus our attention on those who are always gushing with how thankful they are and they're quick to do the things we want to do the way we want to do it. We'll just surround ourselves with those kinds of people. But let me ask us this question. What if Christ did that to us? What if Christ operated that way where, where he, he would cut people off and, and only bear with those that were always gracious and always thankful and always responded the right way the first time? And how many times would we find ourselves on the outside if Christ responded that way? How many times would it be us that, that Christ was stiff-arming because of our self-centeredness and our pride and our lack of care? Thanks be to God. He doesn't treat us that way. He always endures with us. He is long-suffering with us. And true love is Christ-like love that will endure hardship with one another for the benefit of the other person. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Christ, as you know, suffered hardship of every kind to the nth degree in his earthly ministry for the glory of the Father and for the rescue of us, his people. The question is, will we not join him in suffering for the sake of the body of Christ? Will we not selflessly suffer in our relationships with one another, being long-suffering, believing the best, enduring with one another, even when it's hard, even when we're misunderstood or misrepresented, following in the footsteps of our Savior? You know, this morning, perhaps you have come and you hear these descriptions, and as you think about your own life, if you're honest, you don't see any of these in the way you treat other people. Perhaps, in fact, you've, you've built up a sense of pride and thankfulness for how you keep people out of your circle who don't make you happy. After all, the, the world tells us that, you know what, the best thing is just to live for yourself. And so if somebody doesn't make you happy, man, get them out of your life because life's too short. But Christ says no. The gospel tells us that each one of us are in fact sinners that each one of us have sinned against a holy God and we find ourselves in a desperate situation because we cannot bring ourselves back to God. We cannot have relationship with God based on our own goodness because we have none. And so we find ourselves in great need and, and God in his love and his kindness, when we sinned against him, when we made ourselves enemies against him, instead of pulling back, he drew near by sending his own son his perfect son, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, to live in our place, to live the life we were supposed to live and to die as a sacrifice for our sins and then to rise from the grave on the third day, proving that he truly is the son of God and that the father accepted his sacrifice. And the Bible says, if you will recognize today that you are a sinner before God, humble yourself and repent of your sins, putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then you will be forgiven of your sins, given eternal life and reconciled to God, not by what you have done, but by your faith in Christ for what he has done. This is the good news of the gospel. And so friend, if you look at this list, and the truth is all of us look at this list and we could point to each attribute and find ways that we have fallen short. But I'm saying if you look at this list and it describes you in no way, then you need to consider friend whether or not you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we love Christ, we love his people. Not in perfection, but in the direction of our lives. And if you're here this morning and you say, you know, I am a believer, I love Christ, I love his church, but I know I'm not perfect in these ways, and none of us are, then let me invite us as we close to evaluate ourselves in two primary spheres of our lives. We can apply this to any sphere of life, but I want you to think on two primary areas of your life. First of all, I want you to think in terms of your home and or your family, your home or your family. If you're married this morning, then let me ask you, would your spouse honestly say that these attributes define the way you show love to them? If you have children this morning or grandchildren, if we asked them individually and they felt free to be honest, would they say that your parenting style or your grandparenting style is defined by these attributes of love? 
Parents who have adult children, would they say that the way you treat them and act towards them is defined by these attributes of love? Adult children who still have living parents, would your parents say that the way that you're treating them right now is in accordance with these attributes of love? This is the call. But secondly, I want you to think in the realm of the church. In Christ's church, as you think about your interactions with the individual members of this church, can you honestly say that these descriptions of love are evident in the way that you speak, think, and act towards the people in the church? When you serve at North Lake Bible Church, are you careful to not only pursue excellence as you accomplish the task given to you, but are you careful also to pursue excellence in the way you treat people as you accomplish that task? Maybe you've been a believer now for some time and you've been through some painful and hard church experiences in the past, maybe harsh leadership or sin from other members in the church. Let me ask you, have personal attacks or sinful behaviors of past church members caused you to be slow to engage or to be suspicious of the members in this local body? Do you find yourself tempted to just focus only on the task of serving without really engaging with the people around you? What this passage reminds us is that our service in the church really is not about us at all. Our service in the church is, is intended to accomplish three primary things. One, the glory of Christ. Two, the edification of his people. And three, a testimony to the world. The way you serve, both in what you do and how you do it, should bring glory to Christ. It should edify the people in the local body. And it should be a testimony to the watching world of how Christians love one another in the name of Christ. This is why we serve. And so before you leave this place this morning, let me encourage you honestly and sincerely, think through that list in those two realms, in the home, in the church, and look at those areas where you've fallen short, and all of us have. And let me just say, if there's a current break in a relationship right now with someone in the church or in your family because you've failed to act in accordance with this kind of love, don't let the sun go down today without picking up the phone or stopping by and saying, can we settle this? Please forgive me for the way that I treated you. It was less than the love that scripture requires of me. Please forgive me and I commit not to treat you that way moving forward. But let's not allow loveless service or fellowship in the church to create disunity in this local body. But may we honor Christ, build one another up, and may the watching world see an imperfect but a church that truly loves Christ and loves one another to the best of our ability. And may God continually build up this local church for his glory, and may we display the power of the gospel to the watching world. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so grateful for your word, for its clarity. We're thank you, thankful that your word doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't leave us room to hide. It calls us out in areas where we have grown uh, lazy, perhaps, in our pursuit of Christ's likeness. God, we freely confess that not a person in this room perfectly exudes all of those qualities in every area of our life. 
And God, we need your help. We confess that we need the power of your spirit to do its work in us through the word, to conform us to it. And God, we pray that you would do that. God, transform our marriages, transform our parent, parenting and family relationships, transform our interactions in the church, transform the way we carry ourselves in our business and out in our neighborhoods, that we would be those who exemplify not only excellence in outward service, but excellence in the way we intentionally love others for the glory of Christ. Use it for your namesake, we ask in Christ's name, amen.